If, in fact, our minds were a blank slate and experience wrote on them, we would be very impoverished creatures indeed. So the obvious hypothesis is that our language is the result of the unfolding of a genetically determined program. Well, plainly, there are different languages. In fact, the apparent variation of languages is quite superficial. It's certain, as, as, as certain as anything else, is that humans are not genetically programmed to learn one or another language. So you bring up a Japanese baby in Boston, it'll speak Boston English. And you bring up my child in Japan, it'll speak Japanese. Uh, and that means that the base, that from, that it from, from that it simply follows by logic that the basic structure of the languages must be essentially the same. Our task as uh, scientists is to try to determine exactly what those fundamental principles are that cause the knowledge of language to unfold in the manner in which it does under particular circumstances. And incidentally, I think there is no doubt that the same must be true of other aspects of human intelligence and uh, uh, systems of understanding and interpretation and uh, moral and aesthetic judgment and so on. My question is a little bit separate from the topics of today. It relates to your work on linguistics. Uh, so originally, um, when you attacked Skinner's behaviorist model of language acquisition, you did it on the basis that the poverty of stimulus required that we had some prior faculty in our mind that allowed us to learn language from limited examples. Do you think there's a similar argument or account of a common human morality can be given? And do you have such an account or do you have an idea of what such an account would look like? Just to uh, respond, if, if you look at that, as far as the review of Skinner was concerned, uh, almost 95% of it was just running through claims that he was making and arguing that these are totally absurd based on nothing. I mean, I did at the very end of the review say, look, there's another way of looking at this, which comes out of mainstream biology. Uh, mainstream biology just takes for granted that every capacity, you know, your visual system, your ability to walk, uh, whatever it may be, is based on some genetic uh, property. I mean, that's not even discussed. And that's, in linguistics, it happens to be called poverty of stimulus, but it's universal. Uh, what it means is that the kind of creature you are is not determined by the inputs. Like, you can't change a human embryo into a cat embryo by changing around the nutrition in the, in the uh, uterus. You know, it's going to become a human being. You know, that's because it's built that way. Uh, that's just a biological truism. And it's presumably no reason to doubt that it's also true of language. I think it is. Uh, what about morality? Well, I think it's the same thing. Actually, that was pointed out by David Hume. He's, he is, you know, the leading empiricist, but there's a lot of confusion about what empiricism is. The empiricists like Locke and Hume and others, uh, contrary to illusions, they believed in innate structure. And the reason is they were not idiots. I mean, of course, everything that happens comes out of innate, in a large part, out of innate structure. Well, what about morality? Uh, Hume couldn't give much of a proof, but he said, uh, he just made some observations, which are correct. He said, look, we're constantly making moral decisions in new situations, and they're pretty consistent, and other people pretty much comprehend them and so on. Well, if we're doing that, it must be that we have some principles. 
that are lying behind it. And the principles can't be picked up by induction. In fact, in his view, nothing can. It's all what he called animal instinct. It's coming from animal instinct. That's what's now called genetic endowment. So genetic endowment is determining our capacity to gain knowledge, understanding, develop moral principles, and so on and so forth. And I think that's probably, I don't see how that can be false. Well, the next problem is to try to go on and find out what they are. Uh, well, there's plenty of work on that. That's, in fact, a large part of the content of a classical moral philosophy. And it's picked up again in modern work. For example, uh, John Rawls's famous theory of justice. A week or two ago, in the New York Times, Christopher Lehman Haupt reviewed Beyond Freedom and Dignity. He began with two sentences dear to the hearts of my publishers who are not going to allow them to get lost under a bushel. Later on, though, really seriously concerned about some of the implications, he tries to fault me, and he writes as follows. Well, then, what about the most serious and best advertised attack that has been leveled against behaviorism in recent years, namely Noam Chomsky's attempts to demonstrate man's innate linguistic powers, which began with Chomsky's famous review of Skinner's book, Verbal Behavior. Skinner says nothing explicit on the matter in Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Indeed, Chomsky's name is never brought up, which seems disingenuous on Skinner's part. Have we got him there? Well, let me tell you about Chomsky. <laughs> I published Verbal Behavior in 1957. In 1958, I received a 55-page typewritten review by someone whom I had never heard of named Noam Chomsky. I read half a dozen pages and saw that he had missed the point of my book and read no further. In 1959, I received a reprint from a journal called Language reduced now to 32 pages in type, and saw that it was the same review by this unknown character. And so I put it aside without reading it. Then, of course, Chomsky's star rose. A whole new movement welled up in linguistics, generative transformational grammar. And the linguists have this peculiar capacity to make whatever they do seem terribly important. I remember a decade when we were all excited about the analysis of the phoneme, and then a decade when it was semantics, backed up a bit by the logical positivists. And then came the decade of syntax and grammar. And Chomsky's review of my book began to be widely cited, and reproduced, reprinted, became much better known than my book. 
And then word got around, why, why was I not answering it? Well, by that time, I had no inclination to do so at all. In the first place, if I were to answer it, I should have had to read it. And I had no intention of doing that. Moreover, I should have had to read up on generative grammar, which I found very boring. And I should have had to go into the broader issues. Chomsky is the intellectual child of Roman Jakobson, and Claude Lévi-Strauss is another in another field, anthropology. And they represent a movement called structuralism, which is quite clearly not my cup of tea. It uh, is an effort to explain behavior in terms of the form or topography or structure of the behavior without appealing to any prior causes. And this seems to me a hopeless task. So I actually didn't answer Chomsky. Unfortunately, I don't need to now because a psychologist, Kenneth McCorkwadale, has done a beautiful job taking Chomsky's review apart page by page this has been published in the Journal of the Experimental Analysis of Behavior. But the whole thing got out of hand. It, uh, it went way beyond linguistics. It began to be said that I was the modern representative of John Locke back in the 17th century, the British empiricist, who felt that the mind began as a clean slate at tabula rasa, and that all knowledge came from experience. Well, Chomsky was the modern intellectual descendant of René Descartes, the rationalist who believed that you had to think even before you were aware that you existed. Newsweek magazine uh, wrote an article along these lines several years ago and more or less implied that I was winning out. This enraged the Chomskyites, and a flood of letters came in, of which Newsweek thought it wise to publish four. Each one, in its own way, repeated a common misunderstanding of my position. One contended that I am a stimulus-response psychologist, which I am not. Another contended that I think people are nothing more than pigeons, which I do not. The one I liked best had at least a touch of wit. Going back to those 17th century progenitors, the letter writer advised Newsweek to lock up Skinner and give Chomsky Descartes Blanche. <laughs> but even that is curiously mal apropos. Chomsky doesn't want a carte blanche. That's too much like a tabula rasa. He wants the table d'hote, arranged by some unseen hand in the kitchen. Now, ironically, Chomsky was later asked to give the John Locke lectures at Oxford. Well, I was at the University of Cambridge at the time, and the philosophers at Oxford had me come over before Chomsky arrived to sort of prepare the way. 
And then the BBC thought it would be fun to uh, have us debate this issue on television. I don't know what reason Chomsky gave for refusing. I imposed some qualifications. Chomsky talks a great deal. If anyone wants to disprove Alfred Adler's thesis that a man goes into a field in which he has some natural shortcoming, I suggest he cite uh, Noam Chomsky. <laughs> I said that I would debate, provided the master of ceremonies could guarantee equal time. And I suggested that we use chess clocks. My clock would be running when I was talking. Chomsky's clock would be running while Chomsky was talking. And in this way, I planned to have the last 15 or 20 minutes to myself. Um, Sass and others have said that behaviorism is reductionistic and dehumanizes man. As I've pointed out, it dehomunculizes man. If, there's a, if you believe that the body is steered and run by a little man inside, then behaviorism gets rid of that little man. The body is run by its own structure, the genetic endowment of the species, and its history in contact with the environment and the current environment. I think that that is compatible with the most noble view of, of human nature. I see no, no dehumanizing about it. Uh, the thing that bothers me about these references to behaviorism as being manipulative, and another question brought that up, is this. Um, Chomsky and others have repeatedly said that behaviorism is associated with manipulative political philosophies, by which he means, I suppose, fascism. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, I have been called fascist. Well, I, nothing in my, anything that I've ever done is in the slightest, in the slightest extent, similar to what has happened under what I would call fascist governments. The issue is this. If you, if you think that human behavior is determined primarily by genetic programming, and this is what you mean when you talk about the development of human behavior Shakespeare had seven ages, Eric Erickson has ten, Freud had different ones depending upon when you look at Freud's work and so on, but there are the things are growing in the individual. You're born with the, knowledge, with the knowledge of grammar according to Chomsky and so on. You know the rules of grammar. Uh, if you think that we develop in the sense of grow like an embryo, and Chomsky is, has said Roger Brown has said that the development of language is like embryonic growth. Then you're at one end of the continuum. At the other end, you say behavior is due to what happens during the lifetime of the individual. You don't deny that you start with an organism, and that is genetic, but it is pliable, manipulable, you can change it. Then quite clearly, in that case, manipulation is at the end of the environmental end of the continuum. Because you can change the environment, you can't change a genetic endowment except very slowly through some kind of genetic program. And nobody pays much attention to eugenics these days or any kind of effort. You can't make people speak grammatically by breeding people with better innate gra grammar. It don't work that way. If you want to teach people to be grammatical, you teach better grammar in schools. Well, 
If those are the two ends, then you ask which is going to be the one politically most associated with, let's say, vicious political practices. Well, I submit that if you know how to change the environment and are concerned with things like education, therapy, and so on, you will use those ways to bring about the kinds of changes that are important. If you, on the other hand, don't, if you believe this thing is all born into you, then you can't change in any reasonable way at all, and you turn into the most violent ways. The person who really believed in the genetic programming of behavior in the 20th century was Adolf Hitler. That's racism. And Chomsky is absolutely 180 degrees wrong about this. It isn't that racism follows, that it isn't that the concentration camp follows from a theory of innate behavior. It is that when you believe that behavior is innate, you can't think of anything else to do but a final solution which involves a concentration camp. When you are concerned about changing behavior and can do so, then you don't turn to the vicious methods. You turn to better schools, better forms of therapy, better incentive systems, better rehabilitation programs, and so on. Though I would say just the opposite from Chomsky, that, that a, a good practical behavior modification makes it possible to be humane in dealing with people, whereas the genetic approach leaves you open to nothing but violence. Um, I'm sure that my so-called friend, Dr. Thomas Sass, would not agree with that. Uh, he uh, is, a, is the ultimate in a rightist, uh, but also, curiously enough, would believe in the individual as determining his own behavior. Well, that is a form of genetic determination, of course. Uh, we're launching today rather spectacular and, I hope, thoughtful a series of four exchanges between men distinguished in the social sciences who are considered foremost in their fields of study. My curiosity is to know more about what these gentlemen are up to because inevitably their scribblings will shape the thought of tomorrow, if there is any thought tomorrow. We begin today by inquiring into the means by which men develop morally. Everyone has, of course, heard of B.F. Skinner, who was previously on this program and whose book Beyond Freedom and Dignity was a notorious bestseller in 1971, or more exactly, a notorious book which was also a bestseller in 1971. Professor Skinner of Harvard is the leader of the so-called behaviorist school in psychology, which explains human action in terms of human responses induced or discouraged by reward or pain. Skinner's novel, Walden II, is probably the most widely read general statement of his ideas. Professor Leon Festinger is, well, is less well known among laymen, but probably not any less so among professionals. He is the author of a very important book called A Theory of Cognitive Dissonance, in which he contends that moral development is something on the order of an arbitration between thought and conduct, between which there is an ongoing dialectic. I'm sure Mr. Festinger will object to this telegraphic formulation. And I promise him plenty of opportunity to do so. But I'd like to begin by questioning Dr. Skinner. Do I, do I understand you correctly 
she believed that moral attitude in society are entirely shaped uh, by external factors. Yes, that's, I think, a correct statement. I don't deny that uh, people who behave morally feel moral when they're doing so, but I want to know why they behave that way, and I think you must look to the social sanctions beginning when a child is very small, working on him throughout his uh, lifetime, which lead him to behave in ways which, to some extent, control his own selfish impulses and make him more responsive to the uh, interests of others. It's been said that man is the, is the unique uh, example of evolution because he has evolved a moral sense. I think that's putting it the wrong way. What what the human species has done is to construct a social environment, a culture or many cultures, which are essentially uh, situations in which individuals uh, come to behave in ways which are related to the good of others rather than their own personal good. Now, what they, may, what they feel when they're doing this is interesting, but it's a byproduct. I don't think that a person behaves morally because he is moral. Or do I think a man is moral uh, because he behaves morally? This is the old issue, whether, whether a man is sinful because he uh, sins or uh, sin, uh, is, uh, sins because he is sinful. Neither. The, he does this because of some third factor which hasn't been mentioned yet. And there, the, the social sanctions are the reasons why people feel moral and behave morally. So if we want to do anything about this, if we want to make people more likely to behave in moral ways, we should look at the sanctions. We should look at how society uh, arranges conditions which produce moral behavior. Well, how, how do you account for certain, uh, uh, certain phenomena, I guess you would call them phenomena, I'm not mm -hmm. sure I would, uh, which uh, sociologists have, uh, have observed uh, and are more or less prepared to accept as universals, for instance, uh, uh, well, for instance, uh, the institution of the family. Yes. Well, there's a good deal of the, of the genetic endowment here, and I don't rule out the, the genetic environment, the environment uh, in which the species has evolved. Uh, maternal behavior is, uh, I suppose, a kind of behavior which is important because of its contribution to others. Um, the, the member of a group who responds to an approaching predator by signaling danger may be the one who uh, suffers. Uh, he's the one that the predator catches. The others get away. He has sacrificed himself. These, have, uh, these, these arrangements have survival value, and the ethologists, of course, have pointed to many of them. So that we have, to some extent, an inbuilt tendency to behave in ways which operate for the good of others as well as for ourselves. But we also acquire in our own lifetime a great deal of this for a very simple reason that when we behave in selfish ways, we get slapped down. And when we behave in ways which uh, please others, we are loved and, uh, and uh, approved and generously reinforced. The first question, Mr. Chomsky, comes from um, Chris, Christos Goudreau. How have your ideas on universal grammar changed over the years? Are you more or less convinced of the theory now than you were initially? Well, there's, there's a lot of confusion about the notion universal grammar. Uh, univer universal grammar had a traditional meaning, but in modern linguistics, last 50 years or so, it's had a technical meaning, which is not 
unrelated to the traditional meaning, but it's not identical either. Uh, universal grammar is just the name for the theory of the genetic component of the language faculty. I mean, transparently, there's some genetic component, right? Uh, there's a reason, say, why my granddaughter uh, uh, reflexively identified some part of her environment as language-related, which is no small trick. Nobody knows how to duplicate that. Uh, and then more or less reflexively picked up the capacity that we're all now using. Whereas her uh, pet, uh, say, kitten, or a chimpanzee, or songbird, or whatever it may be, with exactly the same inputs, couldn't even take the first step, can't identify part of the environment as language-related, obviously not the later steps. Well, there are two possible answers to how that happens. Uh, one is it's a miracle. Uh, the other is there's a, she has some specific genetic capacity that's like the capacity that had her grow arms and not wings, let's say. Just some fixed, or had a mammalian visual system, but not an insect visual system. Now, this is not controversial for anything except human higher mental faculties. For some reason, when people investigate human higher mental faculties, they have to be uh, insane. You know, you can't accept the approach that we take to everything else in the world. The kind of a methodological dualism. Everything else in the world we study by the standard methods of science, but when we talk about human higher mental faculties, we have to become mystics. So therefore, there's a controversy about the existence of universal grammar, which is like, which means a controversy about whether there is some genetic property that distinguishes humans from everybody else, uh, which leads to these uh, to the ability to do doing what we're now doing. But there shouldn't be any controversy about that. Uh, the only question is, what is it? Well, there have been theories about it from the 1950s when these studies began up till the present, and it's a living field, so they keep changing. So in that sense, yes, my views about universal grammar keep changing. Uh, say when Anne walked into my office as a graduate student and told me I was wrong about everything, and so okay, my views changed. You know. uh, but uh, in that sense, sure, there's going to be constant uh, change until the field is disappears or is dead or something. And it's a long, there's a long way to go. These are not trivial questions. Uh, at the, the, the sort of general tendency of change, uh, not every linguist would agree by any means, so it's a personal opinion. Uh, at the, in the early stages, when the first question was asked seriously about 50 years ago as to how we are capable of doing what we do all the time, uh, how are we capable of understanding, uh, producing uh, expressions which have, we've never heard, which may have never been uttered in the history of the language and do it over infinite range, uh, various strange properties that they have as soon as you look at them, how can we do it? The only answer seemed to be that uh, each of us has a highly intricate computational system in the brain which yields these very specific results. But that then poses a paradox, because it must be the case that we all, all humans, have the same genetic capacity with marginal variation. Uh, the reason is if you take uh, a child from, say, a 
hunter-gatherer tribe in the Amazon and the child is raised in Cambridge, Mass., it'll may just become a graduate student studying quantum physics at MIT with no difference from anyone else, you know, uh, and conversely. So we all have the same capacity. And it's more or less understood why. Uh, the capacity developed very recently in evolutionary time, probably in some window between 100,000 and 50,000 years ago, something like that. And that's just the flick of an eye. So whatever happened never changed, except extremely marginally. So we're all fundamentally identical for all practical purposes. Uh, human genetic variation is very slight anyway, superficial differences, but not very profound. Uh, uh, foreign and outside, say, an extraterrestrial observer looking at us the way we look at uh, frogs would say there's only one human and one language with minor variations. Uh, so on the one hand, it, it's got to be uniform. On the other hand, the, it seemed to be the case that each particular language had a highly intricate and complex system of rules, computational system, and they were very different from one another. And that is a paradox, in fact, a you know, serious paradox. Well, over the years, there have been efforts to deal with it, to try to overcome the paradox. Uh, a major step was taken, and here views on universal grammar, at least for many of us, did change radically, was around 1980. You were there, yeah. It's her fault. Uh, when uh, a different view of the matter sort of crystallized, uh, what's called sometimes called the principles and parameters view, uh, the picture that, the that there are fixed principles which are really invariant. Nobody has to acquire them. They're part of universal grammar. And then there's a number of options that can be taken, called parameters, uh, that the child has to pick up from experience. And they have to be pretty simple. You have to be able to pick them up from limited evidence, because that's all there is. So for example, in some languages like English, the, uh, uh, it's called a head-first language. So the verb precedes the object, and a preposition precedes the object of the preposition, and so on. Uh, other languages, like say Japanese, are almost the mirror image. Uh, the verb follows the object, uh, the yeah, postpositions, not prepositions, and so on. So the languages are virtually mirror images of each other. And you have to set the parameter, the child has to set the parameter which says, am I talking English or am I talking Japanese? And that can be, t be determined from very simple data. So that's a reasonable choice of a parameter. Uh, and the hope was that you could find some finite set of parameters, like a finite switch box, where you set the switch, the child has set the switches one way or another, and can do it on the basis of fairly simple data. And then once this enters into a predetermined system of principles, you get things which superficially look very different, but are actually almost identical, uh, just differing in a superficial choices. Well, if you could work that out, you'd have solved the paradox. It's a long way to work that out. Uh, but that made it possible at least to confront the issue seriously without facing an immediate near self-contradiction. And it set off a lot of uh, a really rich uh, period of uh, research and inquiry and nothing like it in the thousands of years of history of study of language in the last 25, 30 years. 
of a wide variety of typologically different languages, uh, uh, new questions at a depth that could never have been proposed before, sometimes answers uh, leading to new questions and so on. It's been a very lively period. And it also raised another question. What about the principles? Where do they come from? And the fact the choice of parameters, where do these things come from? If they're in universal grammar, if they're part of the genetic endowment, then they had to evolve somehow. But not a lot could have evolved because it's too recent. You know, you go back 100,000 years, there's, as far as we know, nothing. Uh, humans had the same uh, anatomy. Anything that's preserved in the fossil records about the same, you know, hundreds of thousands of years back. So some small change must have taken place in the, in the brain, uh, which somehow allowed all of this to suddenly blossom. And pretty soon after that, again, in evolutionary time, like maybe a couple of tens of thousands of years, which is no time at all, uh, humans started leaving East Africa, uh, where we all come from, as far as anyone knows. So some small group developed this system uh, and then spread all over the world, and now they're all essentially the same. But what evolved in that short period of time cannot have been very complex. You know, you wouldn't expect a series of extensive stages, like, say, uh, development of uh, limbs, you know, millions of years. Uh, therefore, what you predict is that uh, some other principle external to language, maybe some principle of nature, the principle of computational efficiency or something like that, which is not specific to language, uh, interacted with a small mutation which just gave rise to the to universal grammar. Well, that sets forth a new goal of research to ask, to see if you can determine that the principles themselves uh, do not have the intricacy that they appeared to have, but are actually the result of application of non-linguistic, in fact, non, maybe non-human principles, like general principles of computational efficiency, uh, to whatever small change took place. And the small change was probably uh, the capacity to uh, carry out recursive enumeration, basically, the capacity that gives you the number system, for example, to take uh, two things, two objects already constructed in the mind and make up a new object out of them, and then keep that process up indefinitely, so you get an infinite array of possible expressions, uh, each with some semantic interpretation and some mode of externalization, uh, speech, or sign, whatever it may be. Uh, that would be, and the goal would be to try to show that that was essentially instantaneous. Once the small mutation took place, given the uh, this operation, the recursive enumeration operation, that allows you to create a discrete infinity of expressions, structured expressions. Well, that's at least a feasible picture. Uh, the trick is to show that it's tr true, or how close it is to true. Uh, can you cut away at the apparent complexity of the principles and show that they can actually be accounted for in terms of uh, general principles of, that hold for organisms generally, perhaps, and maybe even elsewhere in the physical world, uh, and that uh, are instantly or almost instantly applied once the original move is made to, uh, whatever small move it was, to uh, produce the capacity for recursive enumeration. Well, that's a goal, you know, it's far from being attained, but in the last 15, 20 years, there's been 
considerable progress towards it. That is, a lot of things that it seemed 20 years ago you had to assign to the uh, genetic endowment have no, now been rather plausibly shown to be uh, possible consequences of just application, particularly of principles of computational efficiency, to uh, a system which had only the uh, ability to uh, construct an infinite hierarchy of expressions. And that, we don't know enough about the brain to know how that might have happened, but that could have been a very small mutation, just changing something in somebody's genome and then spreading through the small breeding group. Uh, so that, uh, in that respect, uh, it's, it's, it's a goal, you know, and steps have been taken towards it. But you would expect that something like that ought to be true, uh, just from the what's known about the uh, history of uh, uh, evolution of uh, uh, Homo sapiens uh, in very recent times, uh, without much opportunity for selection to have had any effect, maybe a small effect, but not much. Uh, so that's, I think, uh, it's in that. That's the tendency of thinking, at least my thinking and some other, many others, uh, on how theories of universal grammar have changed. But the idea that there is universal grammar that exists, that can't be controversial unless you believe in magic, you know, uh, for the elementary reasons that I mentioned. All right. I thought that the only difference that uh, I expected to see between animals and what I used to call men people was in the field of verbal behavior and I still think that's true I got around to doing a book on verbal behavior 20 years later published in 1957 but it doesn't simply mean that animals suddenly start talking and that's all there is to it the uh, essential thing is that once verbal behavior became possible and I think that was due to uh, an evolutionary process that brought the vocal musculature under what I would call operant control, call it voluntary control if you like. Up to that point it had been associated with instinctive cries and so on, but once that became, well, it became possible to, to put it crudely, to use speech for, to, to be effective, to produce results, then you could have a culture emerge in which people began to ask each other, what are you doing, why are you doing that? In other words, they began to set up the conditions that led people to look at their own behavior and look at themselves and their own uh, bodily processes when they were behaving. I regard consciousness, awareness, as a social product. I can't imagine how the individual would ever become a conscious individual unless there were other people to provide the contingencies that lead him or her to, to ask questions of that nature. Many people have said, well, how does the behavior deal with the unconscious? Well, that's easy. All behavior begins as unconscious behavior, but some of it becomes conscious when you look at it, analyze it, look at the external conditions under which this behavior occurs, look at the states of your body with which you are in contact, these you call your feelings, your states of mind, and you are then able to talk about these things. Now, a very large part of a culture which makes it so helpful and enables the individual to do so much more as a member of a culture than would be possible as a single individual has to do with making use of the experience of other people. 
You give someone advice. Now, what does that mean? You yourself have been in contact with some situation, and by describing what you do and the results you get, another person can avoid all of the exploratory behavior which led to that discovery. For example, if you just arrived in Miami, you might find a good restaurant through a process of just going and eating here, 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 and here until finally you find one which happens to be the kind of restaurant you like. But if you know someone who, who knows your tastes, that person can say, if you like good Italian food, go to Luigi's. I don't know whether there is a Luigi's, so I'm not really puffing anybody up here. Um, that, that, is a, that sentence contains two things. One, a, a description of behavior, go to a restaurant, and another one, and, and, and uh, some kind of reference to a reinforcing consequence. Go to that restaurant and you will get a good Italian meal. Now, once that has happened, you don't need to bother going all over Miami till you find a good Italian restaurant. And that's a very useful thing. The, the advice that one person gives another, the warnings that one gives another, the maxims and proverbs, which are sort of general kinds of advice that, that a culture can develop, these become extremely important. And I've argued, and I think I've convinced myself, that governmental and scientific laws are of this nature. They describe behavior and its consequences, and hence can be used instead of the kind of shaping behavior that have to go on otherwise. Someone has said it's rather ridiculous if to shape the behavior of a person, as you shape the behavior of a, of a rat or a pigeon, when you can simply tell the person what to do. If I, uh, if I wanted to get a, 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 a chimpanzee, for example, to pull a plunger of a vending machine, I know how I would do it. I could shape that behavior fairly quickly, and the, the, the chimp would learn to pull a plunger and get a bit of something edible. Um, but uh, if it were a person, I could simply say, pull a plunger and you'll get the pack of cigarettes or whatever it is that's going to come out. Uh, the, the instruction on the vending machine, pull plunger and press button under pack of cigarettes, these are instructions, they're advice, and it saves you the trouble of fumbling around with all of the equipment and the whole environment until finally you, some, you find something which produces a pack of cigarettes. And that is, of course, extraordinarily valuable. It does not mean that there's nothing, that there's something wrong with the process of shaping behavior, because until you have acquired the behavior of following instructions, nothing else is available. And that is why, with animals, that's about all you have. You can teach animals a, an imitative repertoire, so you can teach a new response by giving an imitative model. It's very difficult to do, but you do it. And we do it with children. Uh, we used verbal, uh, verbal descriptions of contingencies and imitative modeling uh, so that the child watching someone get something immediately knows what to do. But that doesn't come free. It's only after the child has learned to imitate that that is possible. So that you don't, you don't avoid the essential shaping process in the first place. Now, the cognitive psychology and the point I made this morning, is concerned with the way you talk about contingencies, the way you give reasons for doing things. And when I say, if you want uh, a good Italian dinner, go to Luigi's, that, I give you reasons why you should go to Luigi's, because you get a good dinner when you do that. And this kind of thing is, of course, uh, very commonly done. 
and it is, it is the rational side of human behavior. But Freud saw what was wrong with that. I can say to a person, pull the plunger and get his pack of cigarettes. But suppose this person is uh, ruining himself gambling. And I say to him, okay, I can give you some very good advice, stop gambling. That's that. I'll give you reasons for stop gambling. If you stop gambling, you won't lose money. So you stop. Yes, but you don't. You see, the contingencies are more powerful there than the reasons. Now, the reasons are descriptions of the contingencies, but you don't have reasons to follow the reasons. And so you go right on gambling. And that's a problem that, that uh, therapists face. You can give a patient reasons for behaving well, but that isn't enough, as Freud was very clearly pointed this out. And uh, Freud would say with the unconscious reasons, by unconscious reasons, all he means all I, I, all I would mean, and if I said the same thing, is that there are reinforcing contingencies, mostly reinforcing consequences, which are strengthening behavior in opposition to what appear to be the, the reasons that society gives you for behaving in a given way. As you, you know that if you want to get along better with your wife, you should stop nagging, or should stop complaining, stop to his bed, and so on. All right. Um, those are reasons, and probably they're correct. On the other hand, it's terribly reinforcing to you to find that she's wrong in this, and complain about this, and complain about that, and so on, so that is what you do. There are, there are reinforcing consequences to determine the behavior. The reasons given uh, aren't enough. And I think main, the main problem, really, in therapy, it seems to me one of the problems in face-to-face -face therapy with, with just not, not a psychotic, but uh, with a neurotic person, is, is to find the contingencies of reinforcement, which are the troublemaking effects, so that um, good reasons, which are descriptions of better contingencies, can actually uh, work. Um, we've come this far in the discussion, and we are supposed to be talking about verbal behavior, and yet I haven't uh, asked you to explain your definition of verbal behavior and how it differs from nonverbal behavior. Could you do that for us? Yes. First, however, I, I want to correct you. You said uh, my book was about verbal behavior or language. Now, in the book, I defined a language as a verbal culture. It is people speaking, texts read, and so on, which alter the behavior of, of speakers. Uh, language, English, English language is not saying anything, not speaking. I do speak English. In other words, what I say is verbal behavior has been shaped by English as a verbal environment. And when I speak French, that has been shaped by, alas, not the French environment, but book learning and so on. Uh, the languages are on the side of the reinforcing contingencies. And when you study language, you study current practices in the verbal community, which is not speaking at all, but reinforcing speaking. And that is why linguists have so often confined themselves almost entirely to the behavior of the listener. Uh, Chomsky and others, is this, is this a grammatical sentence? That's not a question about verbal behavior. It's a question about the listener or the reader. Is, that, is a listener or a reader responding effectively to that particular verbal pattern? And so they begin to analyze the structure of the language. And 
as is structuralism of, of the worst kind. Now, meanwhile, someone has had to be speaking, and that is the product of what listeners have done over years uh, of contact with the speaker. The verbal behavior is behavior. A language is the word for a verbal environment, and it is studied as such, and has always been studied as such, by linguists. All the languages in the world, that doesn't mean all of the verbal behavior that's been going on. It means these are the cultures which have shaped different kinds of verbal behavior. Now, verbal behavior is what I'm doing right now. I'm making noises. And I'm making the noises which have had certain kinds of consequences. The first time I said Dada, my father was in ecstasy, I dare say. Oh, he called me Dada. And so I was hugged and uh, given all sorts of goodies and so on. And ever since, I went on calling him Dada or Daddy. Actually, it was Papa, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's not quite so easy for a child to say Papa, apparently. But anyway, the, my whole repertoire has been shaped by the kinds of consequences that have followed. And those kinds of consequences are the things which have created general principles to all languages. The fact that there are universals have made a great deal of, that all languages have certain common features. Of course they have, because there are common reasons why people have reinforced my behaviors in these various ways. And there are, in all languages, there are questions. Uh, what did you say? Or what is that? Um, in all languages, there are negations. Uh, no, not that. Um, in all languages, there are things talked about. There are actions talked about, and so on and so on. Um, these are the universals, because they are the universals of the contingencies of reinforcement responsible for verbal behavior, not any one particular set, such as Greek or Latin or, or French or English. What's the definition then of verbal, of verbal behavior? Well, verbal, verbal behavior is behavior which differs from nonverbal behavior in the nature of its reinforcement. If I touch that glass and pick it up, I've got a glass in my hand. And I could have done that if there had been glasses before the species ever acquired verbal behavior. If I say, hand me that glass, please, and someone hands it to me, I, my, my response, hand me that glass, is reinforced by someone else. Now that reaching and picking that up shapes some very specific muscles in my hand, and related to some strict stimuli from, from the glass to my eyes, and so on. Nothing of that sort is involved if I say, hand me the glass, please. Uh, so my verbal behavior is going to be very different. It's, it's shaping my muscles here in different patterns, but only in ways which have produced certain consequences in a quite different way. So the behavior shaped by contingencies of reinforcement like that 
as one kind of thing, the behavior of vocal behavior shaped by consequences will be very different. And that is why uh, my book simply traces all of the differences between verbal behavior and nonverbal behavior which come from that distinction. From the fact that the reinforcers are mediated Somebody else, behavior, somebody else was, but you know, no solitary person ever began to talk. Mm -hmm. Is the behavior of the listener verbal then? I would say no, uh, except when you are speaking along with the speaker, and we do that a great deal. Uh, if we hear people sing the Star Spangled Banner before a ball game, we're probably saying it along with what we're hearing if we are very loyal people. Um, and when we read a poem we know very well, we are saying it, saying it along with, uh, with the speaker. Uh, it, um, even though he may be dead for several hundred years, he said it, and, and in reading it, you are saying it. You're not just responding to it. The first time you responded to it, you had no no cues to, to lead you to say it yourself. First time you read a poem, you word after word, but after that, you've heard this and done this a thousand times, you're ahead of the text, and the text is prompting, or you may forget it and just recite the poem. Then you, then you are the listener, who, the reader who is saying it. I'm going to come back to the question of the, list, the speaker and the listener. All right. Uh, you may remember that it has puzzled me for some time. Many people would, would, would say, I, probably you, you and I would agree, that the, the, what the listener does is every bit as complicated as what the speaker does. But you're saying that it's of a... In what way is it different except for not making noise? Well, the, the listener is responding to stimuli. For example, I'm a cook and I, and I either ring the triangular bell, chow is ready, or I just call out, chow. Now, what's the difference between coming to the bell or coming to the, uh, the sounds I make? Both are verbal, though, because I don't ring bells unless people do come. But on the side of the listener, it's no more verbal than coming when the tea kettle whistles. You, you uh, do respond to one thing because something else has accompanied it in the past. And I don't see verbal, I don't see listeners doing things that they don't do to non-verbal environments. They may not be doing things, I mean, picking up a glass and handing it to you, mm -hmm. uh, I could do, as you say, whether or not you had asked for the glass of water, yeah. but it's all, the argument is often made uh, by psycholinguists that we're dealing with, with, quotes, language in two forms, the productive side, the receptive side, um, or the comprehension side. If, if you as you do, speak in long, complicated, academic sentences. Yeah. Um, I have to, quotes, process that stream of sound to make sense of it. You have been af affected by cognitive psychologists. Are you processing? What does that mean? 
Are you grinding wheat? Are you distilling oil? What, what is this process? Um, you are doing something, yes. And I can, if, I have to, I, if I don't start with you now to discover this, I start with you as a small child uh, whose mother said, dinner is ready. And you came and, or she said, stop doing that, and you stopped. You, you learn to do, you learn to stop doing in response to stimuli, which would be just as much as uh, not touching something if it's hot or, or picking something up when it looks appetizing and so on. You are responding to stimuli in terms of what has happened to you when you responded to them in the past. And that's not verbal behavior. It happens to be verbal stimuli because they were produced by a speaker. But that doesn't, mean, that doesn't make any difference in what you're doing and the nature of what you're doing. Well, then, uh, whether we call it verbal or not, let's, let's confine the term verbal to that which the speaker well, does. Well, I think the speaker is very, the listener is very important. Yeah. I, have, I have a paper that I gave that obelisk here on the, on the behavior of the listener. I think it needs to be looked at very closely, and I may have neglected it a bit in my book, but I was talking about verbal behavior, which is the behavior of the speaker. I was assuming the kinds of consequences that shape that behavior. I think nothing ever happens without changing the organism and mostly the nervous system. That's the most important part of the, of the body when it comes to changes in behavior. I assume that there are always physiological changes going on. I would, I'm not talking about a black box. That, uh, I did not invent the expression, the empty organism. And I don't believe the organism is empty. I want to work as closely with physiology as possible. I think a good behavioral account is the very best thing you can do for the physiologist by telling them precisely what the assignment is. I, I, is that what, that, am I answering your question or not? I, that's, what I, that's what I think is going on, but I, I have no other instruments to tell me the nature of those changes going on. The, I, I, I don't say because I don't know, but the physiologist is finding instruments to get in there and find out.